Hey, good morning. Um, last, last night, I think I realized it was the first time I had spoken since we painted this wall back here. And I wore a dark green shirt. And I, and I thought, that's the last day, time I ever wear a dark green shirt. I look like a floating head just talking up here. My arms kind of going, ah. But um, so you notice, no dark green this morning. Um, no, it's great to be with you. If you haven't been here, if it's your first time here, or you've been out for a while vacationing or, you know, doing other different things. Um, we've been in this series talking about the letter to the Philippians. Um, and all throughout this series, we've kind of seen a couple major themes just over and over and over again coming through. And, and probably the most major theme that we've kind of talked about and hit on is this idea of what does Christian maturity look like? Paul, in his letter to this church in the, in the area of Philippi, he's trying to drive home, what does it look like to become a mature Christian? What does a mature Christian do? What, how do they act? And, and as we're going to look in, in chapter 3 today, and as we almost kind of get towards the end of, of his letter, we're going to see that he really wants to drive this point home. He really wants to drive this home and, it, and what it looks like to be a mature Christian. And since the day that Paul encountered Jesus and had this distinct encounter with him on the road to Damascus where he, was literally had, he literally had a, a Bruce, Steen, Bruce Springsteen experience being blinded by the light, I think... He, from that point on, you know, he was following Jesus, you know, with all of his might, with all of his faith that he could, that he had, to the point now where he's writing this letter in prison, and he doesn't know it yet, but he's, he's awaiting his own death. He, he's going to tell us today what his main goal was that whole time what his main objective or aim was. And, and if somebody looking at Paul, they might, they might look at his life and all the things that he did, and they might say, well, I think his main goal was to plant churches. He seemed to do that a lot. He was a missionary. He went around. He planted a lot of churches. But, but Paul wouldn't say that was his main goal. That was, that was part of it, and that was really important, hugely important, but that wasn't his main goal. Some people might say, well, it was just to preach and share the story of Jesus, see people come to faith. Well, that wasn't his goal either. Maybe it was to write letters like this one, you know, to encourage the churches that he had planted, but no. He tells us in, in, verse three, or in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul tells us what his main goal was. It was much simpler and more profound than that. If you want to throw up that slide, it was Philippians 3.10. This is the New English translation. It was this simple. My aim is to know him. And by him, he was talking about Jesus. And the verse right before that, he, he's referring to Christ. He said, my aim is to know him. That's it. That's it. That's what it all boils down to. Probably the most influential man in, the, in church history, Paul, his goal was simply to know Jesus more and more. You know, he said, my life is not all about learning facts about God or the Bible or the scriptures. It's not all about doing things for him. But I want to know him personally and intimately and to experience life with him more than anything. And he's telling this young, new, naive Christian church that this is what life really boils down to. This is what it's all about. Get to know Jesus more and more and more each day. That's the goal. 
Paul believes this with his whole heart. He knows and that knowing, he believes that knowing Jesus is the most important thing in life and it's the only thing that should drive us. Christ alone should be catapulting our lives forward. It's not Christ plus you fill in the blank. It's not Christ plus, you know, you have to know or do this other thing. Paul, we will see, we will see that he is saying it's Christ plus nothing. Christ plus nothing. That's the first blank in your intro there. It's Christ plus nothing. That's what it all boils down to. But what does that really look like? What does it not look like? You know, if we went around the room and says, what does it look like to know Jesus? I think we would get a lot of different answers. And in this passage today, we're going to see that Paul gives us some insight into what that looks like. He lays out a few different warnings. We're going to look at three different warnings that Paul gives the Christians in Philippi about different things to be on guard about, about what they might get confused in or what might trip them up or what they might equate to as being equal to knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him. So that's what we're going to kind of dig into today. So we're going to pray. Let, pray with me real quick as we just invite God some more. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here, God. Hmm. Help us today to gain an understanding in our minds and our hearts more and more of what it looks like and what it doesn't look like to truly know you, Jesus, to make that our goal in life. But the only, only way that can really happen as if you show us, Lord, if you, if you speak to our hearts today, if you speak to our minds today, if you move in our lives, so we invite you to come and be with us. We invite you to be here. Amen. So I kind of skipped ahead. I kind of gave you the ending before the beginning, but when we talked about Philippians 3.10, we're going to go back and start off in, in chapter 3, verse 1, and see what are some of these warnings that he addresses. And, and trying to give and impart some wisdom to the Philippian church to keep them on the right path, on the right track. And do you remember how I, they used to say, especially in American schools, I know that, like, hey, the main things that we're going to teach you are the three R's. Remember that? Reading, writing, and arithmetic, which never made any sense to me because only one of them starts with R. <laughs> Apparently, spelling wasn't a part of writing at the time. <laughs> but, um, but we're going to look at three R's today, three R's of warning that Paul warns us about that he does not want us to add on to Christ because it's Christ plus nothing. It's Christ alone. And the first warning that we're going to talk about is that Paul is warning them to watch out for Christ plus rules. That's the first R. Christ plus rules. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Philippians 3.1. That's where we're going to start off. If you don't have a Bible, you can um, follow along on the screens or there's Bibles up front here and on the back on the sound booth, you can take it home with you. Um, but let's look and just read the first couple of verses here. I'm going to read from the, the New English translation. It might be a little different than some of yours, but um, I think it says this part really well. It says this. If you want to put up those, that verse. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again to you is no trouble to me. It is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exalt in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials. What Paul's saying here, he says, first he starts off with the word finally. Finally, I'm getting to the end of what I want to say in this letter, and I'm going to drive this home. This is, this is important. You need to hear this. And he says, I want you to know to beware of the dogs. 
That's kind of an odd phrase, right? Beware of the dogs, the ones who mutilate the flesh. What is Paul talking about here? Who is he talking about here? Well, Paul was referring to a group of people known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Jewish people who had come into Philippi after Paul had left. Paul had planted this church. He had left the area to go on to do other things, plant other churches. And the Judaizers had come in behind him. And what they were trying to teach these young new Christians was that they needed to start following the Jewish laws and requirements too. That, yeah, that's fine. Jesus is okay. But now that you, Jesus is good, but you also need to do A and B and Z and D. And Paul is saying, no, watch out for that kind of thinking. Watch out for those rules. It's interesting here, Paul calls these people the dogs. You know, in this time period, it was actually Jews in the ancient world would refer to pagan non-Jewish people as dogs. They would call them dogs, and they didn't mean it in this nice, oh, dogs are so cute and cuddly and man's best friend. No, dogs in that time period, was, they, were, they were seen as like vermin. They were scavengers, they were wild, they were trash eaters, they were, it was, this was a, a, a mean term, this was a, a, they were calling them names, and the Jewish people would do that talking about non-Jewish people, and here Paul has flipped it, Paul is talking about these, these particular group of Jewish people, these Judaizers, and saying, no, you're the dogs, you're the dogs, and he's, he's being kind of forceful about it, and from the book of Acts, in Acts 16, we find out the story of where Paul first goes to Philippi. If you've never read it, read it this week. Acts 16 is a great series of stories. But it's where Paul first shows up in Philippi and he starts to share the gospel. And Philippi is really far away from Israel. And as far as we know, there were no Jewish people living there, or not very many, if any. There was no Jewish synagogue. And so Paul gets there and the first three people he witnesses to, the first three people who who give their life to Jesus and start to follow him are this pagan businesswoman named Lydia, a demon-possessed slave girl, and this Roman blue-collar tough jail guard, none of who were Jewish. They didn't know anything about the Jewish customs, about their rituals, about their laws. And so this is the church that exists in Philippi, it's these kinds of people, and the Judaizers are coming in and saying, okay, now you gotta start to do all this Jewish stuff. And Paul's saying, no you don't, no you don't. He's, he's getting fired up, he, these are his babies. These are his kids, and, and he's telling, they're telling the men that you need to be circumcised, that you need to be circumcised. But, but the word that Paul does, uses here, is, is really, not the typical word that the Jews would use for circumcisions. It's like a, a mutilation word. And that's all I'm going to say, because I know that makes the, the fellows in the room a little uncomfortable. But, um, but it, it's, it's really extreme. And I don't think that's what the Judaizers were, were saying to do. But I think Paul is just so fired up. He's so irate, because he knows. He knows that it's not just about circumcision. It's about, that's like the, the doorway to the Judaizers now making this, the, or the Philippian church do all the Jewish customs. That's the doorway to saying, well, now you can't eat this kind of food. And now you have to follow these cleansing rituals. And, and now you have to you know, offer sacrifices like this. Stuff that they know nothing about. And is going to become a hindrance to their relationship with Jesus. It's going to become a weight 
It's going to become, a, you know, all these other requirements or rules. I would compare these Judaizers to being like the cuckoo bird. Do you know the cuckoo bird? You know the one that comes out of that annoying clock? You cuckoo, cuckoo. Well, in real life, the cuckoo bird isn't really annoying. It's actually really intelligent. It's, it's manipulative. It's conniving. Uh, the cuckoo bird is, is known as a brood parasite. They don't, they don't build their own nests. What they do is they allow other species of birds to build a nest. And then when they leave to go get food or whatever, the cuckoo bird will come into that nest and lay its own eggs. It will lay its own eggs, often looking very similar to the host bird eggs. And then it'll leave. And the host bird will come back and brood on those eggs and until they hatch and care for those eggs. And what's interesting is oftentimes the cuckoo bird new hatchlings will have a shorter incubation period. They'll, they'll, they'll hatch before the host bird's eggs will. And by instinct, those baby cuckoo bird eggs will somehow lift the host bird's eggs onto their back and push them out of the nest, crashing and breaking to the ground and dying, killing those birds. And that... And I think that this is kind of a picture of what Paul is talking about here. He sees, he sees these Judaizers as coming into his nest, into the church that he has planted, and they're adding in all their, their eggs, their requirements, and he knows that it is going to sabotage what, he, what God is doing. It is going to hurt what, he, what God is doing. Now, there are some, there are some birds that have figured this out, how the cuckoo bird works. So there are some, go ahead and put up that picture of those eggs up there. So this is a, this is a nest of a common red start bird in Europe. And two of those eggs are red start eggs, but two of those eggs are cuckoo bird eggs. Notice how they have similar spotting and coloring. And, and I don't even know if I can tell the difference. The top left one and the bottom right one look a little bit smaller. So I don't know if that's like one and the other. But scientists say that the human eye is not good enough to see the difference between the two. But the common red start bird has really mature eyesight, really distinct eyesight. They can tell browns and reds more, more, more distinctly than we can. And they will actually be able to identify which eggs are theirs and which ones are a cuckoo bird eggs. And they will get rid of the cuckoo bird eggs. And I think what Paul is inviting the, the Christians in Philippi is to not be tricked to have mature eyes to see that these extra requirements, these rules, these things, now you need to get rid of these. You need to, you need to you know, resist these Judaizers to not, not fall into the trap of thinking, well, maybe we should just care for them too. Maybe we should just take care of these eggs too. You know, maybe we, should just, um, maybe we should just start doing these rituals and these laws. It doesn't hurt, right? It's not going to hurt us. Um, maybe we should just do it to be safe. What if, what if they're right? What if, we, what if we need to do all these rules for, to be saved? What if that's a part of it as well? And Paul is saying, nope, you need to stand up for Christ alone. You need to know that that is where your salvation comes from. That is what your, your faith needs to rest in. And you need to throw all that other stuff over the side of the nest. Got ahead of myself here. But what, oh, enough about birds. Okay. Uh, what does this look like, though, in our culture, right? What does it look like in our culture? You know, I, I was thinking about this as a, 
as a kid, when I was growing up, I would describe myself now, looking back, as probably a, a moralist rule follower. Like, I, I was not the kid who was rebellious on the outside and, you know, went off and did my own thing. I was, I was like the opposite, You know the story of the prodigal son where the younger son kind of goes off and blows all the money and eventually comes back and God and the father who represents God welcomes him back home. Well, I could never really relate to that story until I paid attention to the the other son, the older son. The older son is the one who stays home, does all the right things on the outside, but on the inside doesn't really have a relationship with the dad either. He's trying to earn and earn and do all the rules and do everything right, but he does not know his dad's love. And I, as a kid, I remember, like, I grew up in a really traditional church, and I remember just having this attitude and this approach that if I could just do all the right things, make all the right people happy, if I could follow all the rules as best as I could, or at least hide it when I didn't follow them, if I, could, if I could go to church as often as possible, if I could follow the sacraments as often as possible, then, then that's what it meant to be a Christian. And I remember as I grew up, I began to realize like if, if those things, that those things in and of themselves were not bringing me life, that there, those things weren't necessarily bad, but they weren't bringing me life, that there had to be something more to a relationship with God. There had to be something more than that. That I think that many of us are in danger of, we, we kind of get in a rut. We kind of get in this just doing the, going through the motions, doing the things that Christians do. And that creeps in and starts to replace an actual foundational relationship with Jesus. And we, we kind of hit these ruts and we wonder, why are we not growing as a Christian? Where is, where is God? And it's because we've replaced all the rules and the traditions and the things which aren't maybe so bad in of themselves, but we've replaced that with a relationship with Jesus. And, God, and Paul does not want the, this Philippian church to lose the simple beauty of knowing Jesus and to allow all that other stuff to, to bury that or get lost in that. I think the question we need to ask ourselves always is, will this activity, will this thing I'm doing, will this draw me closer to Jesus, yes or no? If it does, then great. And if it doesn't, then we can, we can let it go. We can let it go. Because we do not want to lose track of our main goal, of our main aim to know Jesus. Because it's Christ plus nothing. The second warning that Paul gives us to watch out for and gives the church in Philippi is this. It's watch out for a Christ plus a resume. Plus a resume. That's the second point in your notes there. If we read in Philippians 3 where we left off, and I'm going to switch versions and use the New American Standard here but because I think it says this really well. It says this in verse 3 here. It says, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more. This is Paul talking here. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. 
What Paul is doing here is he is going through his list. He's going through his resume. He's, he's all the things that he's done in the past to earn God's favor, to be right with God. He says, I was, I was like, a, I, was a, I was the perfect, I came from the perfect Jewish family. I was a perfect Jewish boy. I was born, uh, as I was born on the eighth day, I was circumcised. That's what they traditionally did with boys on the eighth day. And he says, I was born into God's chosen people. And not only that, if that's not good enough, he says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which is interesting that he throws that little fact in there. You might think, well, why does, why does he do that? Well, Benjamin was the smallest tribe. It had the least amount of people in it. So he's, he's pointing out here that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of one of the unique ones. There aren't a lot of Jewish people from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he keeps and he goes on. If that isn't enough, he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. And if you know anything about the Pharisees, they were the most elite rule followers. They had these extreme, really odd rules to, where they would do like no work on, you know, even if they would do little tiny things, they would count it as work and they wouldn't do that on, on the Sabbath. And they were just really extreme. And he says, I was one of those. And not only that, I was so zealous, I was so passionate for God that I was persecuting those Christians before I came, became one. I was, I, was per, I was putting them in prison. He says, if you want to look and hire the best, look at my resume. Hire me. I'm the best. My resume is stacked. But then if you keep reading in the next verse, he totally flips it unexpectedly. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ... More than that, I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. See, Paul here, he does the most amazing thing. He says, all that stuff I did, my whole resume, it was worthless. It was a liability. He says, I consider it to have the value of rubbish, the NIV translates that word rubbish as garbage. I consider it garbage. And the, the New English translation actually says dung. I count it as dung. Why? Why? Paul, Paul says, I consider it all basically being worth nothing. Why? Compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In the book, um, to live is Christ, to die is gain, which is a book all about the, Paul's letter to the Philippians written by a pastor and author, Matt Chandler. He puts it very, very bluntly. And he says this in this quote, the best of our best without Jesus is like a pile of, I don't know, can I say that word in church? <laughs> a crap compared to him. My kids would say, dad, that's a bad word. I'm glad they still think that that's as bad as it gets. <laughs> But it, our best of our best without Jesus is nothing. It's nothing. It, it mean, our resumes, our human credentials are worthless compared to the simple fact of knowing Jesus. When, when your dream job has an opening, right? What, what, what do you do? You, you put your greatest accomplishments on a list, your best skills on a list, right? And why do you do that? Because you know there are gonna be a lot of other people who want that job. And you need to put your best face forward. You know you're going to be competing against them. And there's only one person who's going to get it. And so you've got to beat them. You're trying to, to appear to be better than all of them. You're trying to outdo them so you can be chosen for that position. 
this competitive and sizing up philosophy, this worldview of how our, of how our culture works is ingrained in us since we were young. You know, as kids, you know, we were, we were pushed in school to learn as much as we could, try to be the top of the class, right? You know, or, or now we, we put kids in one sport, you know, we don't, we don't say you can't play all the sports, you need to pick one sport because you need to be focused on that sport, you need to become the best at the best of that sport. Or if it's an instrument, you need to pick one instrument and become really, really good at it. Whatever it is, so that you can be elite, and in, 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 in you know, upper education, you know, the goal is to get as many letters behind your name as possible. You know, the more letters you have at the end when you're done with school, then the more qualified you are in life. You know, it's this, it's this idea of to be smarter, be more athletic, be better in every way that we possibly can. It's survival of the fittest. Compete. Be better than all the rest. And unfortunately, this kind of thinking creeps into our Christian worldview too. We are tempted to look at our neighbors and our coworkers and size them up and think, as long as I'm doing better than so-and-so spiritually, as long as I'm doing more God-like activities, then God and I are good. We're good. You know, honey, that neighbor's car, I've noticed, they haven't left on a Sunday morning for church in over a month. Or did you hear the Joneses talking about that rated R movie that they saw? We haven't seen a rated R movie since we gave our lives to Jesus. You know, like, we, we do this. We, we, as long as we are doing better than the people around us, my Christian resume is looking good, and God and I are good. A few years back, a pastor from Georgia, Andy Stanley, wrote a short book called Since Nobody's Perfect, How Good is Good Enough? And it, it just, the whole book just pre- was on this premise of this idea. How good is good enough for God? And he asked the question, is, is 50% good enough? You know, as long as I do more good things in life and bad things, does the scale tip in my favor? Is that, is that good enough? 70%, it's a C, right? C's good, good enough. And do, I, do I have to get an A? Do I have to try that hard? The answer, the answer is that if we want that to be the test, the assessment of our life. If we want that to be the grading scale that God uses, then we will be sorry because we have, we've all missed the mark then. We've all missed the cut because if, if that's the test you and I want to take, then we are going to fail because nobody passes that test because the passing score is perfection. And it's either 100% or fail. And no one gets 100% in the game of life. All are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. This is what Paul is getting in the, at in this passage. He's saying, all that stuff I did, who I was, what I accomplished, you know, once I met Jesus, I realized it was all worthless. It didn't count for anything compared to knowing him. If we believe, Paul is saying that if you believe that your salvation, your standing with God is contingent on adding in your resume to Jesus, then you've been cramming for the wrong test. You know, it's like, it would be like studying really hard for a science test, showing up, flipping the test over, picking up your pencil, and realizing it was all math problems, and going, oh, this isn't good. Jesus himself warns us this in Matthew, and I think this passage should freak us out a little bit, just a little bit. It should wake us up. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he says this. 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons, and in your name, perform many miracles, and then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Woo! And Jesus says, he's saying that some of you are preparing for the wrong test. You, you think the exam is going to be all about the stuff that you did for me. The skills that you were given and your resume that you've built up, but that's not it. That's not it at all. The exam is actually really simple. It's really simple. Two questions. Did I know you? Yes or no? Did you know me? Yes or no? That's it. That's it. We're secure. And don't hear me wrong. Jesus isn't saying doing those things in his name or in honor are bad. He's not saying it's wrong or it's a waste, but rather he's going after their hearts. He's going after their selfish motivations. He's going after their, their attempt to earn their way into the kingdom of heaven. But if instead, if our primary goal is simply to know Jesus more and more each day, then of course we're gonna end up doing those kinds of things for him. But it has to come from a place of loving and knowing Jesus first. It has to. I imagine one day, and this is just in my head, but I imagine one day standing before God, the Father, when I get to heaven, lots of other people around me, and many people are handing God their resumes. And, and on their resumes are all the, a list of all the great things they did, all the good deeds they did, all the things they did for him, and him taking a look at it and just being like, oh, you kind of missed the point. And then I picture myself going before God and on his glowing throne, and handed him a piece of paper with three words on it. Go ahead and put that up there. I knew Jesus. I'm staking it all on that. And him saying, good job, son. Good job, son. Good job. Good job doing all those other things. But most of all, good job of recognizing that it all boils down to this. Do you know me? Do you know me? You know, all those comes to the point where it's like thinking that all those things that I have done for him, it has to come from a place. It has to come from a place of, of primarily the goal being knowing and loving him first. And it has to be that simple. It has to be that simple. Why does, that, why does God make it that simple? Well, it has to be that simple because God loves everyone. God wants everyone to know him. If if getting in or to the kingdom of God, if our status in the kingdom of God is based on our abilities or our accomplishments, then what does it become? It becomes a resume-building race where we have to earn, earn it, and only the best and the brightest make it. But God has instead made the test so that everyone has a chance to pass it. So, so you weren't born into a Christian family. You weren't told you know, Bible stories as a kid. So what? You can still know God. Because it's not about how much you know, it's about who you know. You know, so you have a, a learning disability or a mental disability or a low IQ or your child does. And, and winning some deep theological debate isn't going to happen. And memorizing scripture is practically impossible. That's okay. Because in the end, it won't really matter. Because quoting facts about God doesn't put you in the know. It's all about knowing Jesus. 
Or maybe in your past, in your past, you've done things you hope nobody ever finds out about. You hope nobody ever finds out about. Or you turn your back on God and the things of God, and you, are just, you just feel like, I'm still disqualified. I have, to, I have to earn my way back in. Nope, you don't. You don't. You can return home and be, give, be forgiven and know Jesus. So you weren't born into privilege. So you didn't have a lot of money. So you, so you didn't know where you're, you know, where, what was going to be for dinner or if there was going to be dinner on the table that day. It doesn't matter because you cannot buy your way into the kingdom of heaven because it has already been bought. It has already been paid for. The gift of knowing Jesus is free and all you have to do is grab onto it. Jesus did not come for the elite. He came for everyone. No matter where you come from, what language you speak, what things you've done, what your ACT or SAT score was, you can have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And listen, listen, all those, all those Christian things that, that are good and honorable that he wants us to do, those are, those are good, but only if the driving force behind them is to grow in knowing God better. That's ha- that has to be the aim. That has to be the goal. It's Christ plus nothing. And finally, and thirdly, Paul warns us in this passage and also in, as a model in his life, he warns us to watch out for Christ plus relax. Christ plus relax. And by relax, I don't mean the definition of being calm or at peace because knowing Jesus does allow us to live a life more at calm or at peace. We do get peace when we spend time with him, when we learn to know him. But another definition of relax can refer to the definition of of being free of difficulties, of a life of ease. And that's, that's what Paul is warning the Philippians here in the end. And he's warning us too about be careful not to add that on to Christ. Philippians 3, 7 through 8, we read this already, but let's look at it again through this lens. It says this, whatever things, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And then Philippians 3.10, we start off with this verse, but it's the whole thing this time. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and to be like him in his death. Loss, sufferings, death. To know Christ is simple. Yes, but it sure isn't easy. Paul knew extreme suffering. His, his life from the point of encountering Jesus until his death, death was filled with difficult circumstances. And let us not forget that he was writing this letter from prison of all places. You know, if you were told, if you were told that having a relationship with Jesus would make your troubles disappear, that it would bring you prosperity, that you would just be blessed upon blessed upon blessed, I'm sorry, but you were sold a lie. You were sold a lie. Everyone suffers. This world is imploding and there's no escaping the flying shrapnel. Christians and non-Christians, we all get hit from time to time. And yet Paul he, he says that he, he wants to share in Christ's sufferings. That he, it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. How, how can he say that? How can he believe that? 
How can those concepts go together? Well, I think the only way that Paul can believe that and truly mean it is if he believed that his, in his suffering there was some sort of redemptive nature in it. That in his pain it could be used to glorify Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that if Paul had never been thrown in prison for his faith, then we would not have a good portion of the New Testament letters? You know, this, this whole letter that we've been studying these last couple of weeks on Philippians would probably have never been written. The, uh, his letter to the Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, many of the letters that we study and find em- encouragement in and instruction in, that Paul would have never written them because he wrote them in jail. And because he wrote them, millions of followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years have been blessed by them and encouraged by them. But if he had never been put in jail, he would have probably never written. He just would have gone to those places and visited them and said these things in person. But it would have been lost to us. God had a plan for his pain. He had a plan for his suffering. He was going to use it for the glory of Jesus. Paul understood that. He understood that his suffering was temporary, but that it could be used for the glory of God and to the benefit of others. You show me someone who's going through a pretty smooth season and loves Jesus, I say, oh, that's, that's good, that's awesome, that's good. But you show me someone who's suffering greatly, who's battling cancer, whose kid is struggling with a heroin addiction, whose spouse has just been caught or admitted to having an affair, who's lost their job and doesn't know how they're gonna pay their mortgage, and they, can, they still worship Jesus in those times? I don't say that's good, I say that's amazing. That is awesome, praise you God. That's amazing. I love this quote I heard this week from this random guy. Go ahead and put that up there. He said, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. The choice is how you respond. So wise from Danny. Everyone suffers. The choice is how you respond. Danny went on to talk about that if our goal in life is to be happy, if our goal in life is to go through it with ease, then we will be disappointed when we cannot prevent difficulties from coming. But if instead our goal in life is to glorify Jesus, then when difficulties come and we don't shake our fist at God and we recognize that in our suffering, in our pain, God's grace and love is so compelling that where else would we go? Why why would we want to walk through this without him? Then in heaven, the angels rejoice. They celebrate. I promise you if, you, if you want to strive for a life free of suffering, free of trouble, good luck. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Christ plus relax, Christ plus ease, it doesn't exist. But if you want a life where you can know God and taste his goodness in spite of suffering, so that, that in the end of it all, you can say, you know, that time, that experience, that was so horrible. I can't, but I can't imagine going through it without you, God. I can't imagine how more horrible it would have been if you hadn't been there with me. God has that for you and me. He wants that kind of relationship with you and me. And he's happy to give it. That's Christ plus nothing. I want to end with this story I I heard a few years back. I remember hearing this story about a, a sports reporter who specialized in, in basketball, and he got to sit down with the Michael Jordan for an exclusive interview in, in Jordan's home. 
And he was so excited because he had spent his whole career studying Michael Jordan, learning statistics, reporting on him, writing up articles about him, kind of promoting him, and, and uh, just watching so many game films and, and, and watching him in person. And, and he was just giddy to get to sit down and have like one-on-one -on -one time with him. And he, he said, I sat down and I just started asking him all these questions and him, telling him all this stuff I knew about him. You know, quoting all these statistics. And do you remember that one time when you made that one shot and won that one game? And he said, the whole time, Jordan was real polite, real professional. But about mo most of the way through the interview, almost towards the end, some commotion happened. And at the time, Jordan had a young son. And he's got two sons, I believe. But one of his sons was young. He came running into the room. And he jumped on his dad's lap. And he said, Dad, Dad, will you play baseball with me? And he said, the reporter watched Jordan's demeanor on his face totally changed. It went from being polite and professional to being just overjoyed and just totally smitten with his son. And he said to him, he said to him, of course, yeah, of course, yeah, I got, let, me help, let me finish answering this gentleman's questions and then, and then we'll play baseball. And, and he said, in that instant, the reporter said, in that instant, I realized I thought I knew Michael Jordan and I realized I didn't know him at all. I had... I knew all this stuff about him. I had done all this stuff for him, promoting him. But in the end, I did not know him at all like his son knew him. And he said his son was too young to know probably any or most of his statistics. He was too young to have seen most of his games. But he had an intimate relationship with him that I, will, that I would never have. I think, I think when Paul, this is just my opinion, but I think when Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians and he gets to this part where he's talking about all this stuff, I think he's writing this and I wonder if he wasn't thinking about his experience back on the road to Damascus. Thinking about all those things he had done for God for all his life. Following all those requirements, stacking up all of his resume and then wham, he meets Jesus in this powerful encounter. Blinded by the light, and in an instant, he realizes that all of that stuff was nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. God sees you and me as his sons and daughters. He wants us to know him intimately. That is what the Christian life is all about. To grow in Christian maturity means to grow in intimately knowing Jesus. It's not, it's not about following all the rules and requirements. It's not about building up our Christian resume. It's not about trying to avoid suffering and live a life of relaxation. It's about knowing Jesus Christ. All the studying, all the serving, all the good deeds, all of that stuff must flow out from the spring of living water that comes from knowing Jesus. It's Christ plus nothing. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me here? We're going to end off our service here by having a little bit of ministry time. And I want to just take a minute here, and let's just take a minute and kind of quiet our minds and close our eyes, and let's just wait on the Lord for a little bit here. You know, we believe that God can speak to us. I believe that God is speaking to people right now. He wants to speak to you. Something that was said today, God wants to nudge you in. He wants to encourage you in. He wants to challenge you in. So let's just take a minute and wait on him in silence.
I believe that God is nudging some of you here to get prayer for a few things. I think I'm, some of you, I, maybe you're checking out, you're trying to figure out what you believe about God. Maybe you're, you've kind of been a Christian, sort of nominally, but, but you're not sure. It's always been kind of on the outside, or maybe you, you follow, we're following Jesus for a while and you kind of walked away. But I, some of you, he's really pushing you to say, I don't know exactly what that guy's talking about up there on the stage, but that sounds really enticing. I would love to know God like that. To, I would love to give up this life of trying to, to be good, like, and just be loved first and let the good follow later. You know, if you want to, if you've never said yes to Jesus, I want to invite you to come up in a little bit here and get prayer. A bunch of other people are going to come get prayer for other things. I know that takes a little bit of guts, and, but um, I think God really wants to, to meet you today. And I know for many of you, many of you have known Jesus for a long time, but I have a sense that there are some of us that you just, you've plateaued. You're just kind of, just going through the motions of Christianity, and you've kind of hit this wall and you're just kind of like not sure exactly what it is. And, and something today that was said, maybe it was you realized that you've just been kind of doing the rules or you've just been kind of doing the good works for God, but, but there isn't this intimate relationship with him that you've, you've lost that. I think just right now, I think that there are some of your, your leaders in the church, your small group leaders, you're giving your time and your energy. And, but, it, but when you do that, you've which is good, keep doing that, but you, all the time that you spend prepping and for small group teachings, that's like the only time you connect with God. And God wants you to connect with him just for the sake of connecting with him, not to, not to just lead people, if that makes sense. So I wanna encourage you to come forward and get prayer in a little bit. I know some of you are going through, through some really hard things. Some of you are really suffering with things, really struggling. And you just need God to, to come alongside you today and to, to remind you that there's, there's a redemptive thing going on in, in you. That in spite of your pain, in spite of your suffering, that he's gonna use you, that he's gonna be near you, he's gonna encourage you. I also got a sense of, um, I got this last night too, but I got a sense of some of you, if you have pain in your right foot, it could be your left foot, but if you have pain in your feet, now nerve pain or muscle pain, that God might want to do some healing with that this morning to come forward and get prayer. Um, and I also had the word abandoned come to mind. Um, abandoned. And I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if you feel abandoned by a, a, a former spouse or a family member or something, but you tried to do everything right to earn their love and they left they left anyways. And that has built this barrier, this wall with you connecting with God because you feel like you ha you're afraid he's gonna leave you too. And that's just not true. He's not gonna leave you. You don't have to earn it with him. And so I wanna invite you, if that, if that fits you, if that makes sense to you, and I wanna invite you to come and get prayer. And, and Naomi's gonna lead us in a worship song. And if, if, you, if you're not coming up for prayer or praying for somebody, I just would really encourage you to really just engage uh, with God during this time. Do you have a word too, Bill? Yeah. Just a couple things. Okay. Um, when Andrew was talking about maybe if you have you don't have a relationship with Jesus, um, he invited you up. But I think if there are people out there like that, some of you are thinking, but I'm not good enough. Mm. And to go back That's on the good. books he talked about, none of us are good enough and you never will be. 
but don't let that hold you back. And he also said something about, uh, you know, God loves everyone. And sometimes we can be judgmental and, and things. And we can also, the devil can whisper to us that, but not me, he doesn't love me. And uh, I would just encourage you, if, if that goes through your mind, uh, to come up and push through that and get some prayer. And then just also, anybody who has any kind of physical pain or anything like that, we would love to pray for you. Whether it's physical, I guess, emotional, um, just anything that you need prayer for, you know, we're family and that's what we do up here. So feel yeah. free to come up and start getting prayer. Yeah. So as Naomi leads us in worship, why don't we uh, start to make your way forward if any of those things fit. Guys, pray for guys and girls, pray for girls.
you're receiving prayer, just continue to be encouraged by what God has for you. But I want the rest of us in our seats, I want to end with this. I want to uh, give some of us some homework to think about this week. I want you to think about how do you connect with God the best? What are you doing when you're connecting with God the best? Is it, is it, is it listening to worship music? Is it being alone in your car? Is it, what, what does that look like to you? Is it going on a walk just by yourself? Uh, one of my ways I connect with God is I feel like I connect God when I mow the lawn. I don't know if it's the humming noise and the methodical just kind of back and forth doing the mundane where everything kind of gets blocked out and it's like I can just be with him where I feel like he draws near to me the most. But whatever that is, whatever that is, take time to do that this week. My wife will be glad that I'm finally going to mow the lawn this week. Um, but, uh, and if you don't know what that is, ask him. Ask him, God, how do you want to how do you want to speak to me? I want to know you more. What does that look like for me and how you've wired me? And spend time doing that just for you. Just building your relationship with him. But let's, let's pray together as we end. God, help us to know, to know you like Paul knew you. Help us to have a relationship with you like he did. Help us to grow and mature in our faith. Help us not to fall in temptation of believing that it's based on our on rules or requirements or our building up our resume for a Christian resume for you or, or living for a life of ease. But help us simply to not forget the foundational truth that it's about Christ alone. That's, that's our goal. And that all the other stuff should flow from that place pray that in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, have a great weekend, everybody. If you're a guy...